Well, we've made it. Made it all the way through the book of Revelation. And no one's wearing a tinfoil hat. And nobody's felt a strong urge to make a movie series that Kirk Cameron will star in. We're going to make it. We're going to get through this last one together. No, we're at the, the, the happy ending. We're at the happily ever after. And, and we derive this from a lot of stories, right? They, and they all lived happily ever after, right? Now, my daughter has a, a collection of Disney stories from, as many young girls do, from like the 1970s. So it's like real old. Um, not that old, sorry. Um, <laughs> So it's older, and uh, I, we read Snow White. We read Snow White a lot. Can't get her con- to read anything else, but we read Snow White. And I've read it so many times that I've, I'm kind of on autopilot, and I begin to think maybe what, what's wrong with this ending? It's kind of weird, right? So Snow White eats the apple. She falls under a spell of sleeping death. Explain that to a three-year-old. And then the dwarves get the bright idea to protect her, not by like building a bed and like a wing of their house to protect her. No, they build like a shrine out in the middle of the forest. And I guess they watch over it. I I don't really know. I don't know how long it is, months, maybe years before Prince Charming, whoever he is, comes back and awkwardly decides to kiss this corpse. (laughs) And nobody knows that's how you break the spell. He just figures out what I'm going to do. Now, you might sit there and be like, Travis, I'm about tired of you picking on my fairy tale stories, and that is warranted. Again, we're, we're almost done. But you can also kind of tell I'm a little jaded. I'm a little jaded with the fairy tale ending. I'm a little jaded with the happily ever after. And I think many of you are as well. I think many of us don't actually believe that we're going to get the happily ever after. This is, what, this is a little bit of what Alex talked about last week. We're not going to have the happily ever after. Something's happened in your life to derail that that happily ever after for you. Something has happened, and you think you're going to settle for like, and they were okay forever after. Like, they made it. They survived, you know, happily, sort of happily ever after. That's what you think is going to happen, because maybe you made some choices in your life, and you're like, I, 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 this thing kind of derailed early on, and, or maybe you feel like something happened to you. And you were never really given a shot at the happily ever after. You were, were kind of stunted in that pursuit. I don't know where you find yourself today, but I want to reinvigorate a sense of hope in your life. And one of the things that our world does to us, and one of the things that we do to ourselves, is we enter into a series of practices. And the world comes around us and kind of deflates the hope that we have. We do things, we take actions, we have practices and patterns in our life that make us less hopeful. So what I want to do is I want us to look today at Revelation 21 through 22, and I want us to learn on this purely future text, it's really difficult to apply this because it's all in the future, so how does this apply to me today? Well, hopefully it'll show us some patterns that we can begin to take to build up in our life, some practices that we can stoke and inflame the fire of hope in our lives. So we're in Revelation 21. And we'll look at 22 as well. And the first hope-filled practice I want us to see is the, we're going to practice the presence of God. We're going to practice the presence of God. Verse 1 of chapter 21, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So the city, the city is descending from heaven. It's declared to be new. And it's new in, in quality, not necessarily like 
novelty, okay? So think new in quality. And what's really neat about the city is cities are not comprised of buildings. They're not comprised of streets or architecture or art. What makes a city good or a city bad are the people that live there. So don't get this image in your head of like this walled like fortress like dropping out of heaven. That's the image I've had most of my life. But what we should have is this image of God's people coming back to earth, coming to live on earth, on a new heaven and a new earth, this recreated sort of universe. And so it's the people of God, and, and they, are, they are refreshed, they're reborn, uh, they're from heaven, which means they've been made righteous. They're called the bride, right? We talked about that last week. Bride of Christ, drawn close to him. But the highlight is where we find God in this story. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. This is where all of human history has been driving towards. So the climax of the book of Revelation is probably the climax of Scripture, which is also the climax of all of human history, is God coming to live with his people. Remember, that's how we started. Adam, Eve, garden, God was with them there. Adam and Eve eat the fruit, and then there's this separation. There's this breach that happens in their relationship. And the story of the Bible is God taking step after step after step to bring that relationship back closer and closer together until it reaches this point. You see it in Leviticus 26, 11, 13. In the midst of handing out all these laws, the Ten Commandments, God tells the people of Israel, I'm going to dwell with you. I'm going to be your God, and you're going to be my people. Now, what he means by this is different than what you see in 21. He means that he is going to live in a tabernacle or in a temple, and they're going to be able to come to the temple, the area, but they can't draw too close or they'll die. That's step one. Then there's Ezekiel 37, 27. The temple's been destroyed. The tabernacle's no more. And God reminds them, no, 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 there's st- this is still the plan. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to dwell with you. I'm going to walk with you. Zechariah 2:10 through 11, same thing. Another prophecy reminding God's people, I am coming to be with you. And then John 1:14. The Word was made flesh. The Son of God, the second person in the Trinity, comes and puts on human flesh. He becomes human. And He lives with us. You can talk to God face to face. For 30 plus years, if you lived in Palestine in the first century AD, you could go and talk to God. You could have a face to face conversation with Him. And He would respond to you if you were talking to Jesus. And then Jesus is crucified. He's buried. He's resurrected. And then He ascends to heaven. And when He ascends, He sends the Holy Spirit to dwell with us, and even better, 1 Corinthians 6 tells us He dwells in us. Those of us who are believers, who are followers of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit comes and lives inside of us. It keeps getting better and better and better, and then it culminates here in 21. God comes and lives and dwells among us. This is the final step. This is the realized belief and hope that we have. And I think this is one of the areas where our skepticism about God's fairy tale ending pops up. Because if I'm honest, I don't really believe that God wants to dwell with us. Maybe I need to rephrase that. If I'm honest, I don't know that God wants to dwell with me. I'm cool with the idea that God wants to be with his people, but I imagine that I'm going to be like one of those people at a party that doesn't really know the host, and so I'm kind of just awkwardly there on the wall. Like, I'm there, and I get to eat the food, but I don't really go up and talk to the host of the party. He has closer friends than me. And I think that's the way some of us think that God is going to be with us, keeps us at an arm's length, keeps us distant. Because God doesn't really like us. He may love us 
out of some sense of obligation from himself. But he doesn't really like who I am. And I don't know where you got this from. I don't know where we get this from. But it's probably from our experiences in other relationships that we've had. Maybe you were rejected by someone at some point. Maybe for legitimate, illegitimate reasons. You don't really know. Or maybe you do know. And you think that every relationship you have, particularly with God, is you're just waiting for the other shoe to drop. You're just waiting for somebody to walk out and leave. Or maybe you were manipulated or abused by somebody in power. And so anytime you're around somebody who has a position of power, you're on the defensive. And so the concept of living eternally with the most powerful being is terrifying to you because you're like, people in power have always taken advantage of me. Maybe you've given yourself to other people. And when you needed something, they totally walked away and left you behind. And so now you're on the defensive. You won't give to anybody. You won't trust anybody again. Or maybe nothing like that has ever happened to you in your entire life. Maybe that's never happened to you, but maybe you just like to travel light. You don't like committed relationships. You, whether it's God, whether it's Jesus, whether it's a saint, whether it's a sinner, you don't want to be close to anybody because you like to travel light. And we're all being conditioned all the time by these relationships that we have. And they can work negatively, they can work positively in our life, but a lot of us feel like there is no one ever who accepts us for who we really are. Maybe many of you out there think that everybody is just out to crush you, to get ahead, to take advantage of you. Or maybe you just think there's nobody that's really going to add to your life. Everybody's just a drain on my existence. Let me tell you this, this is not who God is. This is not who God even says that he is. This is not the ending he answers. He forgives us when we draw close to him. Of course we've all done wrong things. Of course God has every reason not to like us. That's everybody's position. But God loves us so much that he sent his son, not just to be with us and hang out with us for a while and be like, okay, just taking this for a test drive to see how this goes. No, but to die on the cross for our sins because a penalty had to be paid because God so desired a relationship with you that he inflicted pain on himself to rescue and redeem us. I don't know what more God has to do to convince us, to convince you and to convince me that he wants to be with me, that he wants to be with you. This, is, this image that we have of God we have, we, is not who he says that he is. It's not even what he's done. So rather than being conditioned by our experiences in relationships, we kind of have to fight that with other uh, relational experiences. We have to practice the presence of God. And you see a little bit how to do this in Revelation chapter 22, verses 4 through 5. It says, They'll see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They'll need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. So Revelation 22 is a little bit of a recapitulation of 21. It's a different way to tell the story, which happens a lot in Revelation. You see a lot of the same scenes played out in different words. But there's some, some really good imagery here about what the eternal kingdom will look like. It says, we will see God's face. So we'll be face to face with him, which means that here on earth, we should seek God's face. That's a metaphor for spending time with him. Be in his word. Be in prayer. Spend time with him. Spend time with him. Believe that he wants to be with you because he said that. I know sometimes when I go to pray, when I spend time with the Lord, it can feel like uh, I'm not getting anywhere. It can feel kind of dry. It can feel kind of dead. And you might think, well, God's mad at me. He doesn't want to be with me. That's not the case. 
just need to, to keep pushing forward, to continue to be faithful in your time with him. Notice it also says we'll have his name. It says his name will be on their foreheads. So this means that the, the, the primary identifier of everybody in the new heaven and the new earth will be our relationship to God. So that means that I need to, in order to spend time with the Lord, I need to seek out relationships with other believers. I need to draw close to the community of faith. Christianity is a communal religion. It is a communal faith. It cannot be lived out successfully on your own. Cannot. It's not designed to work that way. And if you're doing that, you're not doing Christianity. You're doing something else. So seek out other believers who share the name of Christ and spend time with them. Get in a connect group. Get in a small group. Spend time with others. Notice it says there's no night. Everything needs to be brought out into the light. God already knows the deepest, darkest parts of your, of your heart. He knows things that you don't even know that you know. Right. One of the things that we, we try to teach our children is that, that secrets need to be brought under the light. Secrets only have dominion over us, power over us, when they're kept in the darkness. So begin that battle against sin in your life and bring those things out into the light. Share with God what's going on in your heart. Share the deep, dark parts with Him. He already knows. And then make it a practice. Share with one or two other people in your life. And then notice it says we will reign. And I want to explore this a little bit more because we will reign over creation or the new creation just like Adam and Eve reigned over the first creation. It's, it's, it's a reboot in some ways. There's, we're better equipped to reign, but this is still a concept. And I want to explore what this looks like as we look at the next part, practicing the promotion of other people. Practice the promotion of other people. So the story of Happily Ever, Ever After moves on from what it is to how it's going to be, what it's going to feel like. And look at verse 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Man, it sounds like a pretty awesome place. Now, notice the things that are, that are wiped away here. Death, mourning, crying, tears, right? Former things, pain. Why is it that these things are the things that are mentioned here? Well, God has just said, I'm going to be with them. And the things that I'm going to take away are the things that make them question my goodness, that make them question whether or not I love them, the doubts, the thing that fuel their doubts, the thing that crush their hope. Those things I'm going to take away, and they will never, ever, 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 ever question again whether or not I love them. The things that drive a wedge between us and God and our relationship with Him, those things are going to be done away with by God Himself, and they're going to be replaced. They're actually going to be replaced in verse 6. And he said to me, it is done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son, or my daughter. Again, come back to this idea of family. It's a close relationship. For those who persist in a relationship with Christ in this part of the story, before the happily ever after, will be rewarded with a blessing, our, our, our thirst, our desire for community with God and community with other people will actually be quenched, be given that. And again, I think this is something that's really important for us to see because there's an element here, this relational piece, particularly to other people, that shows where our skepticism of the happily ever after comes up. Because when I read a story that has a happily ever after at the end, you know what, what I do with the characters? Once I close the book, and I say, and they all lived happily ever after. You know what I do with that story? I don't go off on my own and think to myself, hmm, I wonder if Snow White and Prince were actually really happy. 
I wonder if she had a bunch of kids. I wonder if she wanted to have kids. I wonder. No, you know what I do with that story? It's kind of a fire and forget. I say happily ever after, and then I go on to other things. I don't wonder about Snow White's life after the happily ever after. And I'm ashamed to say that I think very many of us do that with other people in our lives. Somebody comes up to us at work and they're struggling with something at home, or they're worried about where your company's going, and they're like, hey, I'm really nervous about this, or my kid is sick or something. And we're like, hey, man, I'll pray for you. It's okay, I'll pray for it. It's going to be okay. And then they leave, and it's like we've closed the book on their life. They cease to exist as a character in our story. We don't think about them again. We don't wonder about them again. And we wonder, people probably don't think about us either, right? Those who surround us in our communities, we treat them like characters in a fairy tale story. They exit our frame of mind, and we, we really don't think about them again. And this begs the question, what sounds more like a fairy tale? The story where I'm one of, a, of billions of characters in the story that's a part of God's narrative to rescue and redeem humanity and bring everything back into alignment with the way that he designed, or where I'm the central character of the story and everybody revolves around me. What sounds more like a fairy tale? The answer is the, the second one, just in case you were curious. Don't want to leave any, any blanks for you guys to fill in there in the wrong, wrong sense. This isn't going to be a Mad Lib uh, today. As followers of Christ, it is imperative for us to take what is seen in verses 4 and 5 here, the wiping away of every tear, the nourishing of other people. It's imperative that we take that into the lives of other human beings with us. If that's what we believe our future is like, if that's what we believe the happily ever after is, then we go and make, try and make those things happen in the world around us. We respond to, when, when the story gets out of alignment with the, with the happily ever after, when it looks like the tra trajectory of somebody's life is not the happily ever after with Jesus Christ, we, 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 we work to bring it back in. Now, what do I mean by this? Well, have you ever read a, a children's story with a child? I imagine some of you read children's stories without children. Um, read them with a child, and the child knows the story like really well. And so if you say something wrong or you don't do a voice like they think you should, what do they say? That's not how it goes. That's not how the story is supposed to end. Like if I were to end the Snow White story with, and Snow White and the prince lived for a little while, and then they really decided that they were happy or single and they got a divorce. <laughs> My daughter would be like, wait a minute. That's not how the story is supposed to go because she knows what's supposed to happen. When we see people's lives going out of the direction that God would have for them, when we see something that's not in alignment with the happily ever after, when we see pain and mourning, we need to look at that and say, that's not how the story is supposed to go. That's not the happily ever after. So when you hear that coworker talk about their sick kid or their broken marriage or loneliness or fear of unemployment, you need to lovingly put your arm around them and be like, look, that's not your happily ever after. Work is not the end all be all. Let me pray with you now that God would show you what he has for you and that it's better than this. See, this time of year, we see stories. I read this story on the BBC, which I think they just put it on, on there to, to make me cry. A seven-year-old girl wrote to Father Christmas, which is the British version of Santa Claus. Um, and she said, I, I, all I want for Christmas is a home and food and maybe a nice doll. I'm about to cry right now. read it like weeks ago. You read that and you're supposed to be like, that's not how the happy, happy ever after is supposed to go. That's not how the story is supposed to go. Little kids are supposed to have food and homes because they have a food and a home at the end of all things. So I'm going to do my best to make sure something happens in that. When you see friends or family members that are destroying their lives, 
with sin and addiction. You say, that's not the happily ever, that's not what God has for you. He has better things for you than that. And you lovingly tell them that. So we need to offer something to people in the midst of that. And, and you see it again in Revelation 22. We have two things that we can offer. Look at verses 1 and 2. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, also on the either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of nations. Revelation 22 has these two images. One is this stream of water, right? So Ezekiel 47 uh, has a, a vision that the prophet Ezekiel sees, and it's this water flowing out of the temple, and it gets deeper and deeper and deeper. We've talked about it a little bit over the last uh, little bit here, uh, in the last, um, uh, say, over the course of the year of the Bible that we've been reading. And so in, in, in this story, the water gets deeper and deeper, and as it gets deeper and deeper, it flows into the Dead Sea, and the Dead Sea comes to life, and, and life begins to spring forth. There's vegetables, there's fruit, there's, there's animals, it's teeming with life. And so this living water is, is kind of the image that, that, that John is, is invoking here. And Jesus tells us in John 7, 38, that living waters, rivers of living water will flow out of his people. This means the Spirit of God working in you and working through you into the lives of other people. And so we need to pour our, our life, pour our energy, pour what we have into the lives of other people. We seek out places where people are struggling, dying, places that look like a dead sea where human beings aren't flourishing when we pour into it. We give the hope that we have into those places. This is why we want you to come and serve on Thanksgiving. If you're in town, you should be here or be down at Cornerstone or help deliver food because you have much to be thankful for. The waters have teemed in our hearts and we are grateful. So we show our gratitude by pouring that back out into the lives of other people. This is why we want you to come to the All the Nations on December 14th. Now, I know many of us in this room, because this is kind of our culture around here, we want to show up and we want to do something with our hands. We want, what do you need me to do? Which is great. That's a great attitude to have. But for the nation, or sorry, all the nations, I knew I was going to mess that up, all the nations, we have really just a, a big need for lots of us to just show up and enjoy the experience. Show up, enjoy the music, try some food, and talk to somebody that doesn't look like you. And let those rivers of life flow out from you into the lives of other people. That's what we need you to do for that event on December 14th, show up between, I think it's one and five that day, and just be there for an hour, be a patron, and hang out with people. And then in 22, verse 2, it talks about this, this tree of life, and you might think, well, Travis, what do you mean tree of life? I know enough about the Bible to know that that's kind of close to us, there's an angel with a flaming sword, right? That's Genesis 3. The tree of life, well, in the story of Jesus, Jesus is crucified on a cross, right? In Galatians 3.13, Paul's talking about the crucifixion, and he actually says, cursed, it's a quote, cursed is anyone who is hung on a tree. Then you might say, well, Travis, the, crucifix the cross, it's, it's an instrument of death. Yeah, it is, until Jesus dies on it. And then he's resurrected, and then I come to the cross, and I receive eternal life there. The cross of Christ, an instrument of death, is actually becomes a tree of life for me and for you. It would not surprise me one whit. If in the eternal kingdom, smack dab in the middle of the city is not a tree in the way that we think of a tree, but the actual cross of Christ, and it has rooted and sprouted with leaves for healing and water flowing underneath it, because it's where we derive our life 
from, that beautiful, beautiful cross and the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so this tree of life that we have access to, the cross of Christ, we then offer it to other people. If its leaves are for healing, why would you withhold that from other people? We need to share our faith, offer the cross to people, give it to people, speak the gospel the best way you know how. Talk about what God has done in your life. And in that way, we build up the lives of the people. In that way, we reign on behalf of Christ. So there's a third hope, third practice that we can have to stoke this hope in our life. Because as we see other people coming to know Christ and them growing in faith, hopefully it encourages us to do the same. And so we need to look at our lives. We need to practice the purging of sin. We need to practice the purging of sin. So the remainder of chapter 21 is, all of, is, is a description about this holy city, right? And what it looks like and what it is. And it talks about its purity in verse 9. It says, Then came one of the seven angels, who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, and he spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great high mountain. And he showed me the holy city Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. So the city is beautiful. It has the glory of God. It's undefiled. The people are undefiled. And then it goes on to talk about why not only is this place undefiled, these people undefiled, but that she will never, ever, ever be corrupted again. And that's what the rest of the, the chapter is about. Look at verse 8. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Now, if you read that, you like me, a little self-aware, you might think, I tick a couple of those boxes, if not most of them. Have I been sexually immoral? Yep, sure, sure thing. You bet I have. Am I a murderer? Well, not literally, but Jesus says if you've hated anybody, then you are a murderer. So I check that box too. Am I an idolater? Yes. So am I then excluded from the kingdom? In my life, I have read that with some trepidation. I'm not going to lie. But remember, the whole book of Revelation is about this conflict between the harlot and the bride. We talked about this last week. And the harlot, within the people that follow the harlot, either want people to, from the church, from God's people, to either follow after them to make compromises or be killed. And what John is saying here, what the, what the revelation is saying is, those people who persecuted, who pressured you, who, who tried to bring corruption to God's church, they're going to be excluded. And the people who have pursued righteousness, who pursued Jesus Christ in their life, they will be in the kingdom. And so the people that are excluded are the ones who've tried to corrupt the church, and when they've failed to do that, who have harmed the church. Verse 10 talks about a high mountain. A city and a mountain uh, is unassailable. It's difficult to destroy or to defeat a city and a high mountain. And then 21.12 says, It had a great high wall with 12 gates, and the gates had 12 angels, and on the gates the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. And then it goes on to talk about the gates. A city has a high wall. Remember the Garden of Eden? The Garden of Eden didn't have a wall. And so Satan was able to slither in as the serpent and then slither back out once he had done the evil that he sought to do. This has a wall around it. No evil will slink in and then slink out. There'll be nothing to breach the wall. Never, never be attacked again. And if you're somebody that has struggled with sin, that you're wrestling with sin right now, I don't know about you, but this feels awesome. I want to go to a place where I don't have to worry about temptation anymore. I want to go to a place where I don't have to fight that addiction anymore. I want to go to a place, and I want to spend a long, long time there where I can finally lay down my weapons and I can rest. And maybe this is the greatest reason why we're skeptical about fairy tale endings. We live in a world that's so broken, that's so riddled with sin, so riddled with vice, 
Even our own lives are, are, are riddled with them in some cases. And we think there is no way such a place can ever exist. There will always be challenges. There will always be difficulty. There will always be hatred, destruction, and brokenness and sin. And maybe it's because you've been promised way too many times that, that tomorrow is going to be better, and it just hasn't gotten better. Maybe you've, you've, you've bought onto those promises initially, and now you're like me. You're a little jaded at the fairy tale ending. Maybe you've tried to break sinful habits, sinful addictions, and you keep going back to it again and again and again and again and again. And we go back to it because it's where we derive our self-esteem. It feels good. Maybe it's how we self-medicate. And so even though you know you're made in the image of God, even though you know that you've been, been made, your body is designed for something greater than that, you still send that text with that picture of yourself to that guy or that girl. Why? Because you like the response that you get even though you know that's not what God has for you. Or maybe you sleep with that guy or that girl because you like the way that feels even though you know your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Or maybe we act out of anger again and again and again because it is easier and more convenient to lash out with a quick response than it is to do the hard work of grace and loving people. Or maybe there's some of you in this room that have just gone to that well of temptation one too many times and it's cost you everything. And you either sit here remorseful and, and depressed at the fact that you feel like you've lost your happily ever after, or you're angry and resentful. In any case, you cannot give up the fight against sin in your life. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you cannot give up the fight yet. If our happily ever after exists in a world where there is no more sin, there is no more brokenness, then we have got to do our level best to have some of that realized in this life. We have to continue to pursue that, even though we won't be fully victorious until Christ returns. John Owen famously said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. It's a great quote. I would like to amend it, though. Be killing sin or sin will be killing the hope in you. You want to know why you're jaded? You want to know why you're skeptical that God can do great things in your life? Because there's sin that runs rampant in our lives. We don't try and check it. We don't try and fight it. And it just sucks the hope out of us. It sucks the life out of us. And so Revelation 22.3 shows us one of the things, that, that, two of the things that we can do to fight this fight. It says, no longer will there be anything accursed. We need to work on cutting out of our lives things that are accursed. And you might say, well, duh, Travis. I know that. You need to go through your life. Look at your life, evaluate it, and see what is it that's, that's really tripping you up with your relationship with the Lord. I want you to think of your life as, as, as a river, right? Rivers have tributaries. They have streams that flow into it. There's some rivers that probably are streams that flow into your life, and, and, and it's good, clean water. It's like your family, your friends, maybe this church, maybe the body of believers, and, and, and you're, it builds you up, and it makes this nice, clean water that flows through you. Maybe your relationship with the Lord is really good, but then there's maybe some streams of, of, in your life that, that are polluted, and they're, they're either things that aren't good, and you just need to cut them off, you need to dam that up altogether, or maybe it's something like sex, which is a good thing given to us by God, but we've allowed it to be corrupted and polluted. You just need to clean it up. You need to let the Lord get in there and clean it up and let it not pollute the, the living water that flows out from you into the lives of other people. So look for times, seasons, days of the week where you're most susceptible to the temptations that you fall into and be aware of them. Fight against them. Look for accountability, people to help you wrestle with those things. Someone that's going to love you graciously and someone that's also going to kind of kick you in the pants sometime. If it's at work, find a different work. Find a different job. If your temptation, your greatest temptation is to climb the ladder and it corrupts you and leads you into darkness, get rid of your job. Find a different work. 
Or maybe there's somebody there at your job that you're tempted to leave everything behind, your family and everything, because you want to be with this person. Quit your job. What does it profit a man or woman to gain the whole world and forfeit their soul? Maybe your struggle is in your neighborhood. Temptation comes from the neighborhood you live in. Maybe the material wealth that you desire, the, 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 the covetousness that's stoked again and again and again in your heart, it's because of the neighborhood you live in. Again, move. Put your house up today. Move. Maybe it's at the gym. Lusting after other people's bodies or, or coveting, you want your body to look like their body. Get a different gym. There's like nine bazillion of them. Find another place to work out. Again, it's not worth the destruction that it will cause in your life and in your relationship with the Lord. And the second of these three shows us another thing we need to do. But the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. You've got to replace worship with service. It has to go on at the same time. So we remove things that are accursed and we replace it with worship. These go on at the same time. You cannot beat sin on your own. And if you have any measure of success in it, if you finally do beat that maybe one thing that trips you up, you know what's going to happen? You're going to get prideful. You're going to get arrogant. You're going to think to yourself, man, I cleaned up my life. I did this. I pulled myself up by my bootstraps. And that is twice as worse. That pride, that arrogance is going to drive you further away from the Lord than that sin ever did that you got rid of. You got to go to the Lord. And anytime you do have success and victory in your life, in anything, you give him praise and glory. Anytime you do win a battle, praise and glory. Anytime you fall short of the mark that he has for you, you go to him, you give him praise and glory because he's a gracious God. You don't wait to clean up. Alex said this last week. I thought it was great. You don't wait to clean up. You go to him immediately. He wants you to come with him. He desires to be with you in whatever state you are in, whatever condition you find your heart. He wants to be with you. So go to him. Don't wait. There's no sense in it. There's no logic behind it. It's just a lie that you're believing. Don't wait. Waiting is death. And there's no sense in you as a follower of Jesus Christ to live in it any longer. And if you aren't a follower of Jesus Christ, guess what? There is freedom for you today as well. It's a simple walk right through those doors and you can come talk to me, you can talk to other pastors, you can talk to a volunteer and we will tell you again and again and again how much God desires to be with you. So what I want to do is I want to pray over us. Rather than, than kind of wrap up, I want to pray and pray that this discipline of hope will be, be introduced into your life. Because we're done with Revelation, which I'm kind of sad to see it go. But we're not done hoping and we're not expecting. We're not done desiring that our King would come to be with us. Because if you want to know if you're hopeful, you want to know when you've arrived in the arena of hope, I'll tell you when you know. When you desire the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords to return. When you want Him to come. That's when you know you're hopeful. So let's pray. Lord God, we're grateful to you because you're a God who desires to be with us and to be near us and to draw close to us. And so God, I pray for each person in this room. I pray that they would develop in their own heart and in their own life the practice of the presence of God, that they would spend time with you, that are close to you, Lord God. Pray also that they would begin to practice the promotion of other people that they would look beyond themselves, beyond their hearts, that they would know that the, the tears that you will wipe away one day, day in, in all of our lives, they have a responsibility to do that in the lives of others. So I pray that we would fight back against the darkness. I pray that we would also practice the purging of sin. I pray that you would give us victory in a struggle that seems never-ending. I pray that we would win, and I pray that you would receive the glory. 
And until that day comes, these are the closing words of the book of Revelation, and we pray them together. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. And the grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen.